podcast of Antioch Church in Colorado Springs. If you've been impacted by this ministry and would like to support the work we're doing in Colorado Springs, you can give online at our website, antiochcos.com. We hope that the Lord ministers to you through this message. So I didn't do too well in college. I wasn't a great student. And I, I made a C in speech, which now, given what I do with my career, is a little, little troubling. Um, I take some comfort in the fact that the, the speech professor was, well, let's say past his prime. So he, he never got my name right. So I like to think that actually I earned an A and that he just assigned a C to me, confusing me with someone else, but <laughs> let, me, let me keep that, if, if you will, please. But I, I say that because um, I've been here often enough now that I'm, I'm getting close to tempted to say what I really think, and so each time we're just inching closer to that line of, of me, you know, saying what I really think, and today is, is going to be one of those, one of those times. It won't be too smooth. This is where the C in speech comes in. It's, it's, not really, it's not really a sermon. It's more just me sharing with you what seems to me like the big picture about what's happening in our world and in our country and what that means for us as people of God. And the, I, I, I'm, I am introverted. I was one of those people hiding out for five minutes um, just a few moments ago. And I don't particularly like argument. Uh, I love discussion, but I don't like arguing. So I don't really enjoy this part of my work. I don't really, I don't take joy in saying things that I know some people are going to have a hard time with. And I'm going to try to be as funny as I can be to take the edge off of it. Um, <laughs> but I'm not terribly funny either. I didn't, I didn't make an A in that course either. <laughs> So I don't know how much of the sting I can take out, but the, the gist of what I want to share with you is that I think the Christianity that most of us have been taught to practice was very self-absorbed. It was very much a kind of inward focus, self-obsessed way of living with God. And that we lived that way in, in the assumption that the larger culture was Christian enough that the needs of people would be met. That we had hospitals and orphanages and schools, political systems that were Christian enough that the needs of people day to day would be met while we were concerned about deepening our walk with God. And I think that what we're slowly coming to realize and should, not, should have always realized is that our systems were not actually caring for everyone well. Certainly not everyone equally that many people, especially people of color, people who were poor, were not receiving the kind of Christian care that they should have been receiving. And now that we've, we, in kind of dominant culture, start to realize the ways in which the culture is shifting away from quote-unquote Christian values, we're panicking a bit. And I think this panic is revealed in our politics, it's revealed in our social media conversations. It's revealed in our sermons and in our prayers. And for the most part, 
not, not, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but for the most part, what I see is disturbing to me. What I see is a lot of Christians, mostly white, middle-class Christians, who for a long time had a Christianity that was self-concerned, and now that the culture around them is changing, they're coming aware of the need to have public responsibility and social responsibility. But instead of engaging that from the posture of service, they're engaging that from a posture of resentment. Resentment that the culture is changing. I told you I'm getting more comfortable saying what I really think. So, um, And... It's, it's not about being left or right politically. It's not about being Republican or Democrat or Libertarian. It is about being faithful to Jesus. And for too long, our churches separated public responsibility from the life with God. And now that we feel the need to address public issues, we don't have the wisdom to do it well. Speaking generally, again, there are wonderful exceptions to this, and I don't want to overstate what I'm saying. But in general, I think that's the lay of the land. So what I want to share with you this morning is about that issue. And I want to try to speak to to that issue, plow that ground a bit. And the the idea is simple, and that is we have to change our posture. We, We absolutely have to change the attitude with which we're engaging the world. And some of that is about being honest about our failures in the past, but it's, it's more than just being honest about our failures in the past. It's about stepping into the present and into the future with an entirely different attitude about what God has called us to do in the world and what God wants for the world. And as I said at the end of the conversation yesterday, it must not be from a position of superiority. We must not approach this issue as Christians, assuming that we, because we know God, have a morally superior position that the rest of the world needs to just accept. Like we cannot approach the issues this way. So we're going to look at the Gospel of Matthew. There's a, there's a theme in the Gospel of Matthew. We don't have time to do the entire book, obviously, this morning, but I'm just going to show you a few chapters of, of the way in which this theme develops. And that's the theme of questions asked to Jesus that reveal misunderstanding. The very question is itself reveals how little the questioner understands what Jesus is about. So we're going to start in Matthew 16. Everybody still okay? Okay. I don't know. That's 50-50, but I'll I'll live with it. I'll live with it. We're going to start in Matthew 16 with a question Jesus asks, and then we're going to track the questions that get asked to Jesus, and then we're going to culminate in Matthew 20 with another question that Jesus asks as a kind of bookend to the, to the questions he's being asked. And, and then I think, I think the connection will be clear to you in terms of what I want to share this morning. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples a question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? What's the story about me on the street? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So we have this question, who do people say I am? Get the response. Notice that when people respond, they respond assuming Jesus is a a prophet of challenge. Every prophet that they name, Elijah, Jeremiah, these are prophets who challenged Israel in their unfaithfulness, which tells you something about the way that Jesus was perceived. Now, often the way that we imagine Jesus, he was so grandfatherly, so approachable, so sweet and gentle. And I think that those, that's true to some extent, especially with marginalized people, with people who were broken and children. But with the rest of us, Jesus was, was seen as a prophet, prophet with an edge, as a prophet who brought to bear the word of God, a, a word of judgment against the people of God. And, and so Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am then? And Peter's the only disciple who speaks up, as we know, and says, you're the son of God, you're the Messiah. And Jesus celebrates it and says, yes, you're, you're exactly right. God has revealed that to you. That didn't, that didn't come naturally to you. That was a, a supernatural revelation. Verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. I mentioned this yesterday in the, in the talk, those of you who were here for it, know that I, I talked about the ways in which Peter receives a revelation from God and makes a true confession, but what is happening in his imagination while he's making that confession is altogether wrong. So that it's possible to hear from God and to speak the word of God truly and to completely misunderstand what that means to completely misapprehend who God is and what God is doing in the world so that you can go from being Peter, the one upon whom the church will be built, to being the stumbling stone over whom Christ trips. And it's possible to make that move in an instant. And here's here's the hard word. For people who come to think of themselves as people who hear Revelation, we are the ones most likely to then become impediments to what God is doing in the world. Because we will know we've heard from God. We won't recognize that just because we've heard from God doesn't mean what we understand him to mean is right. And then we will insist that our revelation privileges us to insist upon what God is doing in the world. And this is why, again, just to put it sharply, this is why I think that we're seeing such unchristian responses from the people who've most prided themselves on being people who were close to Jesus. Evangelical Christians are responding very unchristianly as a rule right now, even after generations of priding themselves on being the Christians who are closest to the heart of Jesus. That's not an accident. We've had revelation, and we didn't allow our minds to be transformed to fit the revelation, and so now we are proud. We, we think that because we've been so close to God, we know our scripture, we attend church, we pay our tithes, we raise our children rightly, we go on missions trips. Because we are people who have good moral standing, we think that gives us the right to act from resentment, to act from, from anger and bitterness. And that's what's happening with Peter. 
He thinks the fact that he heard from God gives him the right to tell Jesus what God, in fact, is doing in the world. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You have in mind human things, not the things of God. And from this point on, Jesus is hit with a series of questions from these disciples. I'm going to show you how this works. Matthew 17, verse 1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John. Now, this is, this is fascinating to me, that even after Peter has made the mistake he's made, a, dr- a dramatic mistake, a drastic mistake of turning against Jesus, of becoming satanically wrong, Jesus still takes him with him. And this is, this is the good news about our God, is that he will keep us in his company even when we are against him. Right? Six days after this event where, where Peter has said, no, Jesus, this is not for you to do, even after that, Jesus takes Peter with him to the Mount of Transfiguration, right? So, so God's graciousness cannot be overstated, right? That God is, is with us even when we are dramatically wrong, right? Where we are satanically wrong. So he takes Peter, James, and John up into this mountain, and just the four of them there, he is transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles or three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud, a voice said, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome with fear. So here's, here's the first response. So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, even in their misunderstanding, leads them up into the mountain and is transfigured before them, reveals his glory to them. And as soon as the glory is revealed, Peter reveals his misunderstanding. Let's build the tabernacle here. So, so much about it is striking. One is Peter's willingness to, to leave everybody behind. to to stay with Jesus on the mountain. And the fact that Peter has no humility after what he's just gone through. I mean, it's astonishing that he hasn't, he's he's not at least reluctant to speak up after he just was called Satan by Jesus a week ago. A week ago, he was Satan. And now he's, let's build tabernacles here if you want me to. I will do it. I will build three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, which reveals that even when he sees Jesus' glory, he still doesn't understand who Jesus is. And so much of evangelical and charismatic spirituality has been about seeing the glory of God. We sing about it. We preach about it. We pray for it. We testify about it. But here's the thing. Just because you see the glory of God doesn't mean you understand who he is. Peter sees him transfigured and still doesn't understand who he is. He really still can't see the difference between Jesus and Moses and Elijah. He doesn't understand that this is not one of the prophets of Israel. Even though he said, you are the son of the living God, you are the Messiah, he still doesn't understand what he's confessed. And so he says, let's build three tabernacles. Jesus ignores him. And God says, listen to my son. This is my son. Listen to him. 
And then they notice that Jesus is alone. As they were coming down the mountain, verse 9, Jesus ordered them, tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? What a strange question. I mean, they've just seen God in the flesh revealed. And they're asking this question about eschatology. And Jesus' response is dismissive. Elijah's already come, if you can understand it. And then they come off of the mountain. They descend from the mountain. Verse 14, when they came to the crowd, a man came to him, knelt before him and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Jesus answered, you faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was cured instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? Now I want you to think about what's happened here. Jesus has led them up to the mountain, the three of them, has revealed himself to them. They still don't understand who he is. He comes down from the mountain telling them, don't tell anyone what's happened. And they're focus is still not on Jesus, but on obscure points of eschatology. They come to the base of the mountain and they encounter this man who has an epileptic son who's self-destructive, who's throwing himself into the fire, throwing himself into the water. And the disciples are not able to cure him. And this man comes to Jesus and says, I've tried to have your disciples heal my son. They cannot. Can you help? And Jesus' response is to be grieved to be grieved with this faithless and perverse generation. How long must I be with you? This seems to be the only real burden that Jesus bears in his life is the burden of living with people who are faithless, of living with people who just do not understand at all what God is doing in the world. And so he, he says, bring him to me. They bring the boy, Jesus cast the demon out of him. The boy is healed instantly. And then the disciples immediately ask him a question. And I wish I could convey to you how grieving this question is to me and how grieving I assume it must have been for Jesus. Because here is what it reveals, that the disciples, after everything they've experienced, after everything that they've seen, they're not thinking about Jesus and they're not thinking about their neighbors they're still only thinking about themselves. Why could we not cast him out? And again, with with all kinds of exceptions, and I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, this is, I think, where so many of our churches are. We're told that the whole of the Christian life is about loving God and loving neighbor. That it is all summed up in this. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And we've developed a way of being Christian that's concerned about anything but God or neighbor. It's concerned about our relationship with God. Notice the disciples. They're not praising Jesus for healing this man's son. They're not rejoicing with the man that his son has been healed. All they can think about is, why couldn't we do that? 
Why couldn't we do that? And Jesus' response is, because you have little faith. And I know how that sounds to us. That sounds to us like a call to get better faith, bigger faith, stronger faith. But that's not the point. That's still self-concerned. Jesus says it's not about having more faith. If you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be gone, and it would be gone. You don't need more faith. You need to love people more than you love being in relationship. You need to love people. I want to say that again. You need to love people more than you love being in relationship with God. Until you love people more than you love your personal relationship with God, you will always have little faith. Because everything that happens to you, everything that happens to your neighbor, will come back to this question, why couldn't I? It's not about you. It's not about me. Who cares if I couldn't do it? The boy is healed. What matters is that this epileptic boy has been freed. He won't throw himself into the fire anymore. He won't throw himself into the water anymore. Let's rejoice about that instead of complaining that we couldn't do something we like to think that we could do. We're so self-obsessed. And as if we didn't realize this, Matthew, the writer of the gospel, keeps pressing the point. He keeps showing us the ways in which everyone around Jesus keeps asking the same kind of question. Look at chapter 18. Verse 21. Jesus has just said that we should listen to the little children. They're the ones who make up the kingdom of God and that we should be careful not to offend one of these little ones. And then he talks about the ways in which we are to deal with offense within the community. And that, of course, leads to Peter asking another question. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me. Now again, listen to the question. Peter has just days ago been Satan to Jesus. Then he's been on the mountain and completely misunderstood the revelation, come off of the mountain and been concerned only about himself in relationship to what's happened with this this man and his son being healed. And now Jesus gives a teaching about forgiveness and all Peter can think is, if someone sins against me, maybe Peter, the question is, if I sin against someone else, what should I do? But he isn't asking, what do I do if I sin against someone else? He's asking, what if someone sins against me? And before you dismiss Peter too quickly, I think he is, he is representative of us. These are the kinds of questions we are asking. This, this is revealing our thoughts and the intents of our heart. That we're, we're worried about what if grace is taken advantage of and someone harms me? That's what Peter's concerned about. Jesus, I hear what you're saying, but what if somebody wrongs me? How many times have, have I, have you, heard the gospel and then bracketed immediately, immediately with, but what if? I mean, just yesterday when we were talking about race and talking about the need to address the brokenness that's in our, in our country and in our world around, around race, 
all of us were able to think of examples of people, as soon as you bring up that conversation, the response is, yeah, but what if? What if somebody's racially prejudiced against me? That's the wrong question to ask. The question to ask is, what if I am prejudiced against someone else? God, what do I do when I sin against someone else? Not what do I do when someone sins against me? We're in a defensive posture. And, and Jesus' response is not exactly what Peter expected to hear. Peter says, if somebody sins against me, how often should I forgive? And then Peter is not gonna leave that question open-ended. He says, as many as seven times, trying to show just how generous he actually is. <laughs> right? I can, I can just, I can hear it in Peter's voice. Like, I'm willing, Jesus, I would forgive someone who sinned against me seven times. I would do it seven times. <laughs> and I don't know exactly, of course, I don't have insight into what Jesus was thinking, but I like to think that Jesus just died laughing. I like to think Jesus' response to this was just bend over, slap his knee, laughing. And like, you think that's gracious. You think that's gracious. That you would forgive someone seven times for wronging you. This is what Jesus says instead. Not seven times, 77 times. And then he just laughs some more. Because here's, here's the thing. You can tell that you're not in the spirit of Christ when your primary concern is what if I'm wronged? What if we do what God wants and it doesn't work out to our advantage? What if we reach out to people and they take advantage of our care? What if we show love to gay people and then they think that we condone it? Do you hear the spirit in that question? It's not about what you think. It's about the love of God being shown in the world. Your opinion, my opinion, doesn't matter. The fact that we're concerned about someone getting the wrong idea about our opinion reveals how little we understand about the character of God and about the purposes of God in the world. Love people. It's not complicated. It isn't. It isn't complicated. We complicate it because we're self-obsessed and self-concerned. And we're afraid that if we love people, they will take advantage of it. And here's the news. They will. If you have children, you know. They will take advantage of it. If you've been a spouse, you know. You will take advantage of it. That's what you do with God every day of your life. You take advantage of it. That's what I do with God every day of my life. I take advantage of it. Love anyway. It's not complicated. It only seems complicated because we are calculating self-benefit. I'll do what God wants so long as it works to our advantage. So long as it doesn't cost me. Just think about how, what I'm going to say next time. This isn't exactly what I think. <laughs> Not seven times, but 77 times. Not seven times, 
77 times. I, I, I don't know how, I mean, I don't know how to say this other than God's grace and mercy are so much more than you think it is. Like if you really understood, if I really understood the kind of mercy and grace that God has, it would scandalize us. I mean, the, what's, what's going through Peter's mind and what goes through our mind is if I keep forgiving somebody and they just keep doing wrong, then I'm just condoning what they're doing. That's called human history. That's the whole history of God's relationship with us. Is mercy's new every morning. And every day, we fail to live it. And in the next morning, his mercies are new. Not seven times, 77 times. There's a story of, I'm just trying to think through what I am going to say and not going to say. Um, there's, a, there's a story about Jesus and a Roman centurion. The centurion has a servant who he says is precious to him, who's, who's ill. And he sends word to Jesus that he wants this servant to be healed. And Jesus speaks the word and the servant is healed. And Jesus celebrates the man's faith. And this, I was thinking about this passage and two, two things about it are striking. One is, without scandalizing anyone too much, if you're not already scandalized, in, in the ancient world, in Roman culture, when you had a servant that was precious to you, it was often a sign, not that they were a servant, but that they were a slave, that they were a companion. We don't know for sure, but it is very likely that this servant, this man is requesting prayer for, is a, a lover. This is incredibly common in the ancient world. And even if he wasn't a lover, he's a slave. So if I'm Jesus and you come to me with a, a story about how one of your servants is sick, here's how I'm going to respond. I don't condone slavery. So I'm not going to heal your slave so your slave can be better at being a slave for you. Free your slave and then maybe I'll heal him. And if, as, as was common, this is more than just a slave, I would have added that. This isn't the appropriate kind of relationship. You, you have a wife, that's adultery. This is child abuse. Stop it. I'm not going to do anything for you until you get your life in order. But do you realize you wouldn't exist if God didn't do anything for you until you got your life in order? You have breath with all the things that you're doing, and you know what they are. With all the things that you're doing, God is keeping you alive. We wouldn't do that. We wouldn't condone that. But here's the thing about the grace of God. It is far more radical than we have ever been allowed to imagine. Yeah. And now we're in a place where as the culture is shifting, 
we feel like we have to double down on our moral principles to make sure nobody misunderstands about what we stand for. To hell with that. That is a lie. That is absolutely antichrist. There wouldn't even be a world if God worked with us that way. Think about what Jesus' ministry would have been like if everywhere he went, he said, okay, I'm gonna turn the water to wine here at this wedding, but let me just go down the line. Who did you vote for? Okay, well, I'm sorry. I'm gonna, you're just gonna have to go with grape juice. I, I, I can trust these people with wine, right? <laughs> think, think, about, think about what Jesus is doing when you've got hundreds, maybe thousands of people at this feast and he's just turning wine. I mean, I'm sorry to scandalize you, but he's just giving wine to people who are already drunk without even asking them if they're responsible or Republican. <laughs> or when he turns the fish and the loaves into a meal for everybody. We argued about whether or not to bake a cake for a gay wedding. And Jesus is turning fish and loaves into a meal for thousands of people. Because here's the thing. Some people love their morality more than they love God. They want to be moral. They don't want to be holy. But we're not called to be moral. We're called to be holy. We're not called to be good people. We're called to be godly people. We're not called to be nice. We're called to be sanctified. It's getting really quiet in here. I should have slept better last night. We'll just blame it on that. <laughs> but but, but hear my heart. Hear, hear my heart. We are really off base. And we're really confused about things that aren't really confusing. There are people who need our love and need our care. And we're unsure about whether or not to care for them because of our moral principles. And the reason we're unsure is that we spent generations obsessing about our personal relationship with God instead of loving our neighbors. And now that we realize we need to love our neighbors, we don't know how to do it. We don't know how to do it without condoning. We don't know how to do it without approving. We don't know how to do it without somehow sanctioning what's taking place. I'm almost done. Two more passages here in this section. One is when I don't know why I can't find the passage. I know it's here. Okay, here it is. Uh, Matthew 20. I'm almost done and then I'm going to be gone and you may never ever, ever see me again. It's been wonderful knowing you. <laughs> The joke in the church for years will be, remember that one time I acted like it was certain that he was coming back and then, yeah, no. Matthew 20. Verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked a favor of him. And he said to her, what do you want? Man, I wish you could hear the way that question sounds to me. 
God asking us, what do we want? What if this morning God asked you what you want, not just for yourself, not just for this church, but for this city, for this nation, for the world? What would we say? And notice what she says. This is what I want. Declare that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus said, you do not know what you are asking. There's no need to mock her because she is us. We are her. We get in the presence of God and all we can think to ask about is ourselves. What do you want? I want blessing. I want favor. I want to to know you better. I want to be close to you. I want dreams and visions. I want revelation. And I think that every time, listen, there's a point in your Christian walk where that's perfectly fine. It's childish, but it's fine. When you're a child, be a child. When my kids come to me and they ask for something, I'm not offended. They're kids. But if my sons are in their 30s and the only thing they want to say to me is what can I give them? That's going to grieve me. And when we come to God always asking for more, for ourselves. Jesus' response, he's not even angry. He's just grieved. You don't know what you're asking for. And then he asks her another question. What do you want? And can you drink this cup? Can you drink this cup? And this is the question that I think God is asking us. We ask God a lot of questions. There's a passage that I skipped over in which the disciples ask Jesus the question, who is the greatest? So here are the questions we get in this section. Why couldn't we do it? Who is the greatest? How many times do I actually have to forgive? And can we sit at your right hand and your left hand? Do you hear how self-consumed all of those questions are? And Jesus says, no, the question is the one I'm going to ask you, and that is, can you drink this cup? Because here's here's the good slash bad news. If God has called you to be close to himself, it's so you will undergo these experiences with him. If God has elected you, it's because there's someone he loves that he's asking you to serve. The reason you're here this morning and other people are not here is that God adores those people and he needs you to care for them. And the question is, can you drink that cup? If you knew that your life would be a gift to other people, but you wouldn't experience blessing, would you still say yes? If you knew 
that you were never going to have dreams or visions or revelation. You were never going to feel close to the heart of God, but that through you, children and mothers and fathers would feel the love of God. Would you still say yes? If you knew that the rest of your life, you would have to work two jobs or three jobs to make ends meet and the money would never just flow in, but that at those jobs, you would be the kind voice, the kind face, the kind presence that people need. Would you still say yes? If you knew God would do nothing for you, but with you would do everything for other people, would you still say yes? That's the cup. That's the cup. Is this is not about what I'm going to gain. I haven't been drawn close to the heart of Jesus so I can prosper. Jesus tells his disciples this. And I'm going to stop. Jesus said to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and the great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you, but whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant and whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the son of man came, not to be served, but to serve. This is, this is the life that's inside of you. Put your hand on your stomach for just a moment. If you've been baptized into Christ, there's a life living in you. And it's a life of radical love of neighbor. What's alive in you is utterly at odds with your self-preservation instinct. It's utterly at odds with everything that you think of as common sense. Because what's alive in you is the life of God, which comes not to be served, but to serve. Here's the thing about God. He can't be served. You can't do anything for God because God has no need. You can't do anything for God. What are you going to give to the one who is everything? You can't do anything for God. And to have God's life in you is to become the kind of person who is not a center of need. And, and again, at the risk of overstating things that are more complicated in reality, I think we've nurtured a kind of Christianity that makes Christians into centers of need. Where we come to church to be blessed. How many communities, church communities, have been disrupted because the people who were coming on Sunday morning were coming to get something? They demanded a certain kind of performance in the music and a certain kind of performance in the preaching and a certain kind of performance in the children's ministry because they're looking to be served. But the whole point of the Christian life is that what's alive in us can't be served. It can only serve. Paul on on Mars Hill says, God cannot be served by human hands. There's nothing you can do for God that doesn't immediately turn out to be God doing something for you. 
Like today, when we come to this table, we're supposed to be bringing gifts of bread and wine and offering to them to God as thanksgiving. But what's going to happen, in fact, is God's going to take our gifts and make them gifts to us of the body and blood of Jesus. Everything you try to do for God turns out to be something God is doing for you. And if God is in you, that's what your life will be like. Everything somebody tries to do for you turns out to be you doing something for them. This is what it means to be people of God. Is to realize that to be called to be close to Jesus is to be called to drink the cup of being poured out for other people. It doesn't mean that everything that's happening in our world is all right. It doesn't mean that every shift in our culture is a good shift. It doesn't mean that there aren't going to be dire consequences for some of the decisions that are being made in our world. It does mean that if the life of God is alive in us, we don't stand back and clutch our pearls and pray for Jesus to come back and rescue us. We step right out into the midst of the brokenness of the world and we love the very people who despise us. I saw on the news this weekend a report about anti-Christian sentiment in the culture. This, this feel that Christians are being put upon by the culture. That may be true. I don't know if that's true in Colorado Springs. But it might be true somewhere. But so what? So what? They spat on Jesus. They might spit on you. But while they're spitting on him and driving the nails through his hands, he's not saying, you shouldn't be doing this. I'll have my day. He's saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Maybe our culture is going to hell in a handbasket. Maybe there is anti-Christian sentiment. Maybe you won't be able to say Merry Christmas next year. That was a joke. You should have laughed at that. So what? The life of God is alive in you. You don't need anything anyway. You don't need a Christian culture. You don't need Christian music or Christian schools or Christian t-shirts. You don't need anything. The life of God is alive in you. You don't need a culture that's catered to make your experience safe. That's not who we are as the people of God. We're not here to protect our purity. We're not here to come out of this alive. We're going to die on the cross with him. That's the only way this story is going to end. So can you drink this cup or not? We're coming, I think, to a watershed moment. And that is Christians who've been in love with their morality and Christians who are in love with the idea of a Christian culture are going to have to come to face the fact that there is a living God who's not interested in preserving those things. God doesn't love Christianity. He loves the world. God's not here to make Christianity great. God is here because he loves his creatures. He loves these people that he's made. He loves them as he loves himself. And that's what's alive in you. I think I'm just going to stop there, Pastor Jade. Thank you for listening to the Antioch Church Sermon of the Week. 
For more information about us, visit AntiochCOS.com.